You can turn your Bibles, if you will, to Colossians chapter 3 and 4. We'll be looking there. Our text is actually Colossians 3, verse 12, down through chapter 4, verse 6. And that's a long text. We're not going to read all that. But I encourage you to read the rest of it sometime soon, maybe this afternoon. You'll want to get out your Bible and read Colossians 3, 12. I'm just going to read the last five verses there, verses 2 through 6 of chapter 4. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. And pray for us, too, that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I'm in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Today we're thinking of the last of the four commitments that characterize the people at Lockwood, the commitment to the world. At LCC, we want to be committed to Christ, to Christ-likeness, to each other, and then to the world. That final commitment shows up in numerous ways around here, not least in our extraordinary care and support for missionaries and for national workers abroad, and in our local and global outreach through Change Your World, and in many other ways. Lockwood is committed to the world and is making a difference. But understand, our commitment to the world does not stand in isolation from the other things we do. The commitment to Christ is the foundation for everything. And most immediately, our commitment to Christ-likeness. The commitment to Christ-likeness is what supports our commitment to each other. And then our commitment to each other undergirds our commitment to the world. A person who is trying to win the world for Christ while cut off from meaningful relationships in the church is not going to succeed. And the salvation that he or she offers will inevitably be truncated. It'll be detached from this world and removed to the next. The life of the church, this church, for example, and the love of the church provides the backdrop to our witness in the world. Or better yet, the life and love of the church does for our witness what a musical score does for a movie. So when George Bailey's friends come streaming into the house at the end of It's a Wonderful Life, you know, people always tear up. Okay, so I always tear up. I don't know about everybody else, but it's a moving scene. But if you removed the background music, that scene would lose much of its power. If you were to watch the scene in the movie Rocky when Sylvester Stallone runs up the steps of the Philadelphia Museum of Art and then he dances around and he throws his arms up in the air without a soundtrack, you would think that you were watching a comedy. It's what's going on in the background, almost outside your notice, that makes you buy into that scene, that makes it effective. The church, it's relationships, love, challenges, sacrifices, 
provides the soundtrack to our life in the world. When we tell someone that God loves them, they'll believe it if they can see that we love each other. When we tell people that Jesus offered himself for their salvation, they'll believe it if they see us sacrificing for each other. See, and they just won't see it. They'll feel it. They'll feel it the way they feel the soundtrack of a movie, even though it's not something they've been paying attention to. To live persuasively in the world, you must live lovingly in the church. When Karen and I were in college, our home church hired a pastor. In fact, he's the first um, senior pastor that I ever worked with because he hired me. And he loved to tell jokes, at least one in every sermon, and he was absolutely terrible at it. Once he started in, everybody would sit to see how he was going to mess up this joke this week. Sometimes he'd get the punchline wrong, but he'd get, but other times he'd get the punchline right, but he'd get the setup so wrong that the punchline didn't make any sense. So he'd say, two worms were in a race. Pause. It ended in a tie. And we'd all sit there going, What? He was supposed to say, two silkworms were in a race. It ended in a tie. (laughs) The commitment to the world is is like the punchline. It only makes sense when the other commitments to Christ, to Christ-likeness to each other are in place. What I just read for us a few moments ago, the last few verses in our text, is like the punchline. It instructs us on how to relate to people outside the church. But those instructions fall flat if we don't set them up right by following the instructions that precede them. So in our text, I find six of the best things that you can do to encourage friends and family outside the church to consider turning to God. Some of those friends and family have thought about it from time to time. They've thought about God. Everybody thinks about God at some time. Here are some things that you can do that are going to help them. The first is this, be committed to the church. Now, we talked about that last week, so I I don't need to remind you, I'm not talking about a commitment to the organization, to Lockwood Community Church Incorporated, but to each other. Verses 12 through 16 of chapter 3 in Colossians elaborate what that commitment looks like. Now, we talked about that in detail last week, so I'm just going to say this. If you love the church, if you love the people of the church, your witness in the world will be that much more powerful. Invest in relationships in the church. Invest in the work of the church. Don't just come to church. Be the church. Enjoy the church. Love the church. A great connection to the church will immediately enhance your commitment to the world. Secondly, do what it takes to make your family relationships great. What does that have to do with people outside the church? People outside the church are in families, and they want them to be loving, happy families. Show them how a connection to Christ can make that happen. Paul describes what a great family looks like in chapter 3, verses 18 through 21. Let me read them. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, Obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children. 
or they will become discouraged. In a great family, wives are submissive to their husbands. Now, let me just ask you, how's that going to sell outside the church? Or even inside the church, for that matter. It'll drive people away from Christ instead of driving them to him, right? But that's because they misunderstand what this submission is about. And then they place the practice of submission outside the context of a husband's love and sacrifice for his wife. But what Paul joined together, a wife's submission and a husband's love, really what God has joined together, let not man put asunder. Let me just say briefly that the kind of submission that a wife shows her husband has nothing to do with subservience. It's the same kind of submission that this same apostle told us to show to each other. The idea is not, I'll be your doormat, but I'll be your supporter. I'll be your cheerleader. I'll be on your side. I'll uphold you. The wife who is committed to Jesus is supportive of her husband. And he knows that his wife is on his side. Now, he also knows that doesn't mean she agrees with everything he says. I mean, that's not any more true than you agree with everything I say or I agree with everything you say, even though we're in mutual submission to each other. It does mean, though, that she is for him. She's for him. When a guy knows his wife is for him, it makes a huge difference in his life. Guys thrive on it. It makes them better men, better fathers, and better husbands. And yet most guys do not know that their wives are for them. I say that without the least shadow of a doubt. In fact, in our society, women are taught to refrain from giving that kind of support because it's demeaning or even dangerous. But here's the flip side. While the wife is supporting her husband in that way, letting him know that she is for him, the husband is loving his wife. And day in and day out, he is giving his life, his time, his thought, his energy for her benefit. The Jesus follower doesn't let other things get in the way of loving his wife. Not work, not friendships, not television, not hobbies. Not pornography, which is about the fastest way to say to your wife, I'm just not that into you. The submissive wife doesn't have to be afraid of losing herself when she has a husband who loves her and wants her to be everything God made her to be. And one of the worst things a husband can do is embitter his wife against him. That's what the word translated, be harsh with them, in verse 19, really means. The kind of husband that says unkind things to his wife, the kind of husband that embarrasses her in front of her friends or ignores her altogether, but then demands that she be on his side. People outside the church live that way all the time. That's just their life, but that's not what God intends for us. We need to do what we can to have great, supportive, loving marriages. I mean, read books, go to conferences, have difficult conversations, make changes, ask for forgiveness, do what it takes, have a great marriage. See, that's an order. We also have to have great parent and child relationships. That means, verse 20, that children obey their parents. The word translated obey could also be translated listen to. 
In fact, that's the primary meaning of the verb. Jesus' followers don't ignore their parents, not when they're 14 and not when they're 40. They pay attention to them and do what they can to please them. You know, that's not what's going on in the community around us. Families are torn to pieces. Children hate their parents. They mock them, reject them, even scream at them. Their homes are in constant chaos. Elderly parents are ignored by their middle-aged sons and daughters who are too busy to pay attention to them. We can show them something better. Now, will it be easy? No. I, I know some of our families are already in trouble. They look a lot more like the Simpsons than they do like the Scriptures. But God will help us. But look, we need to go back and make sure our commitments are in place and are in the right order. A commitment to Christ himself. A commitment to being like him. So desirable a thing. And a commitment to each other in the church. Now another thing about families. Dads play a critical role. In in our culture, dads are sometimes pushed out of the family and into the workplace as if the family doesn't matter. Not in the scriptures. Dads play a critical role. Dad not only loves his wife, he treats his children with dignity. He doesn't call them names. He doesn't mock them or yell at them. He tries to understand their concerns and support them. He does not, this is verse 21, embitter them. Now, different word this time. This word means He's not looking to start a fight. Too many dads are ready to go to war with their kids at the first sign of disrespect. Paul urges dads to get along with their kids. Don't make it hard for your kids to listen to you. If you can show your friends and, and, and co-workers a family that lives in peace and love, a family that enjoys one another, They're going to be interested in how you got to be that way. People are hungry for a family like that. And we know how they can get it. But we must model it for them. A meaningful commitment to the world is expressed best through a family that's happy, purposeful, and full of love. So we've got work to do in our families. Now, if you want to have impact in the lives of your non-Christian or not yet Christian friends. You need to have a great relationship with your church. You need to have a loving and respectful relationship with your family. And you need to have integrity in your workplace. There was a woman in the church that I last served who worked at General Motors making wiring harnesses. It was piecework. And she got paid according to rate. If she outperformed the set rate, that means she'd make a bonus. Every now and then, management would send a timekeeper into set rate, and then all of the workers would slow way down so that the rate would be low and that they could make bonus easily. But this woman would not slow down. She maintained her integrity, even though she made her coworkers angry with her. But you know what? When she told people about Jesus, they had reason to believe her. Whereas if she had acted like everyone else, her words would have just rung hollow. In chapter 3, verse 22 through chapter 4, verse 1, Paul deals with our work life. He says, in essence, be a good worker. Don't just get by doing the least you can do. 
Work well as if the Lord himself were your employer, and he will pay you as if you were his employee. Even on the job, it's the Lord Christ you're serving. Don't forget that. But he doesn't stop there. It's not just Christian workers, but Christian bosses who need to have integrity in their work. If you own a business or you manage someone else's business, you're a supervisor, a foreman, or you're in some other responsibility position, and you call yourself a Christian, people are watching. And you know what else? So is God. How can you hope to tell people about Jesus when you won't listen to their concerns about work? How can you expect them to believe that God is fair when you're not? So Paul writes, Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair because you know that you also have a master in heaven. We can modernize that, update it, and say, Owners, provide your employees with what is right and fair because you know that you also have an owner in heaven. Bosses, you have a boss in heaven. Supervisors, you have a supervisor in heaven, and he's watching. Okay, three things so far that have a huge impact on your effective witness for Christ in the world. Have a great church. Have a great family. Do a good job. Let me share two more things that make a difference. First one is go through life prayerful. Be prayerful. As you go through your day, converse with God about the things that are happening, the people you're meeting, the troubles you're facing. Paul says be devoted to prayer. Let me restate that in a way that his first readers would have heard it. Always be prepared to pray. Pray at the drop of a pen. Whatever you're doing, wherever you are, in the grocery store or at a high school basketball game, be prayer ready. The kingdom of God is active in places like grocery stores and gymnasiums. And you are on active duty. Notice what Paul says. Be watchful, or literally, keeping alert. The word can even mean staying awake. Stay awake in your prayers. That's a tough one, isn't it? Stay awake with thanksgiving. So here's the picture. You pray and you watch. You watch to see what God is doing in the grocery store and in the gym. And you ask him how you can help. See, because you know, you know beyond the shadow of a doubt, he is doing something in those places. And you're aware that he may want to employ you in what he's doing. So you pray and you watch. And you thank God for giving you the chance to serve him and the resources you need. You pray and you watch, but what do you watch for? You watch for opportunities. That's the fifth thing. Grab up opportunities. Well, opportunities to do what? To serve the kingdom of God. To serve God in your place. That opportunity may be to show mercy or to right a wrong or to feed someone who's hungry. It might be to defend someone who's being mistreated or to tell someone about Jesus who doesn't understand. It may be to love an enemy or say good things about someone who said bad things about you. It's an opportunity. Kingdom opportunities come in many forms. Chopping wood for a friend or even a stranger. Calming a child or even a parent. Listening to a lonely person. Saying yes to someone who needs help. Telling your Jesus story to someone who's ready to hear it. Giving a hug to someone who needs to feel it. There there are all kinds of opportunities, but you have to watch for them. And I'm afraid most of us go through most of our day without watching. 
you are far more likely to see those opportunities if you are prayer ready. Some people are totally not prayer ready. The only thing that ever gets them to pray is a crisis. That's not the way it's supposed to be. And those are not the kind of people who are going to see much action in the kingdom. So grab up your opportunities. Now, here's one way to do that. By having good conversations with people. That's our sixth difference maker. Have good conversations. What makes a good conversation? First and foremost, it is full of grace. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt that you may know how to answer everyone. That's one of the things to pray about when you see an opportunity to do something good. Lord, help me speak with lots of grace. I confess that my conversations are not always full of grace. Sometimes I'm hurried and abrupt. Sometimes I lack the grace to listen before I speak, and I don't even realize it until later. But grace, and remember, grace is a big word. It includes things like kindness, generosity, thoughtfulness, gentleness, forgiveness. Grace connects with people. Whether you speak English or Spanish or Arabic or French or German or whatever else, God will speak through you when you're speaking in grace. Grace counts more than eloquence. Grace counts more than rhetorical flourish. Speak in grace. Be gracious. No one's absolutely sure what Paul meant by the next phrase, seasoned with salt. Some people point out that salt is or could be a symbol of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, but that doesn't seem to be where Paul's head is at. It's more likely, Paul is saying, that our conversations ought not to be bland. Don't bore people, especially when you're talking about God. Be funny, be smart, be interesting, be brief. Whatever you do, don't bore people with the gospel. Let me tell you about how wonderful God is and just put them to sleep. Don't do that. Know your own story and be ready to share it. Paul adds, so that you may know how to answer everyone, or better, so that you will know how to answer each one. The answer you give one person may follow a different trajectory than the answer you give someone else. One person needs to hear about God's love, is desperate for it, who's never seen it. Another needs to hear about his justice, who's gone through unfairness and injustice. Someone else needs examples of how all of this works in life How will you know how to answer each? By being wise, asking questions, and praying. See, it is a great skill, one that can be learned to be able to listen to someone, work or school, and listen to God at the same time. That's possible. You can carry on a conversation with that person and with God simultaneously so that you know how to answer each one. So here are the six things again. Have a great church. You say, well, we're not a great church. Then make it a great church. You have a role to play in that. Two, have a great family. Three, do good work. Four, 
be prayerful, be prayer ready all the time. Five, grab up opportunities. Watch for them. And six, have good, grace-filled conversations. Shortly before he died, Dallas Willard was asked if he had any regrets. He answered, I regret the time I've wasted. John Ortberg, who asked him the question, was absolutely flabbergasted. He later wrote, If there is any human being on the planet who has not wasted time, it's Dallas Willard. I don't think he'd know know what a television was if it hit him on the head. He's either reading or teaching or doing ministry. If he's guilty of wasting time, the rest of us may as well sign up for vagrancy hell right now. After thinking about it, Ortberg went on to say what he thought Dr. Willard meant. I think Dallas regretted all the time he wasted, not because he compared himself to other more efficient people. It wasn't about efficiency, but because he began to see what life could be. I remember him saying that all of us lost souls allow ourselves to live in worry and anger and self-importance and pettiness when life with God is all around us. Don't waste time. Don't miss opportunities. Life with God is all around us. But entering that life takes commitment to Christ, to Christ-likeness, to each other, into the world. Are you up for it? Let's make that commitment. Let's pray together. Would you bow your heads? I'm going to give you a couple moments just to center down and and let the Lord speak to you about whatever he wants to say, maybe what he's just said to you, and you to speak back to him. of words but what we need is a little action so Lord let all the words that I've just spoken fall by the wayside except for the ones that you've spoken into our hearts and there where we meet you in your word by your grace Help us to act. Not at some far off day with good intentions, but today. Because of Jesus. Amen.